Part One, Chapter Ten of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ghost of Chantilly. A large ball was to be given near Fairfax Courthouse. A very high-toned affair with the brigade band to furnish music. All the generals were to be there, with now and then a colonel, but nothing except a star on the collar passed muster, with the exception of a few who could be counted on the fingers. I was well acquainted with the lady of the house, a dashing, brilliant brunette, reminding one of Di Vernon. She had no respect for buttons just because they were buttons, and would leave a general of a division any time to take a moonlight stroll with a grey jacket if she liked the wearer better. Yes, it was to be a grand party, and the soldiers, from the highest to the lowest, discussed the great event around the campfire and envied the invited ones. When the day arrived, by judicious borrowing, I had succeeded in getting up a very respectable costume. A white shirt was loaned me by one of my comrades, whose name I was asked to conceal, for fear the whole company would bear it in mind and try to borrow it on some future occasion, it being the only one in the company. An officer, a friend of mine, supplied me with new military trousers with a gold stripe down the sides. I found a handkerchief lying around, not very white, it is true, and I had a diamond ring on my finger. So I intended, under all this nimbus, to hold up my head with the highest general in the lot. As I sat in my tent, busily rubbing and polishing my buttons, letting anticipation have full sway, I was awakened from my dream by the sergeant of the guard, who put his head inside, saying, Hunter, report at once for guard duty. You must mean somebody else, I answered. Do you know there is to be a party tonight, and that I am invited to it? I have nothing to do with your party. You are on the regular detail to report at the guardhouse at once, replied the sergeant gruffly, as he pulled his hat over his eyes and walked off, leaving me numbed with despair. I went to the captain with the sad story, but something had gone wrong and he was cross, or rather sarcastically kind. Asked whether guard mounting should be stopped because there happened to be a party in the neighborhood, and whether a wedding would not have to be preceded by a flag of truce. I appealed to the colonel, but he was not invited, and being an old bachelor, wanted to go. Hence he took savage pleasure in denying my request. I sought the brigadier, who laughed at me. So with a heart filled with the keenest disappointment, I reported to the guard tent, where I was told I would not be posted till evening. I wandered off by myself, with grief too profound for words, too poignant for consolation. Never did City Belle, with her new dress ready for the ball which she was compelled to forego, feel more keenly the defeat of her hopes than I did mine, relinquishing them too only to walk up and down a beat and cry, All's well, to the moon. Evening came and brought no joy to me. I smoked all the tobacco I had for comfort, and then answered to my name at roll call. It was six o'clock, when instead of donning brave attire, I followed the sergeant and struck out from camp. Where are you going, sergeant? I thought I was to be placed on a beat in camp. No, he said, you are detailed by the officer of the day to guard Chantilly. Oh, I replied, I am glad. And then I began to recall all I had heard of this famous ancestral place. Chantilly, the home of the old Stuarts, was one of the handsomest country seats for miles around. In the olden days of Virginia it was kept up in baronial style, and was the centre of profuse and lordly hospitality. Many were the gatherings within its walls of the sporting gentry who assembled to celebrate the annual meet from far and near. 
Imagination can picture the gay throng, just as tradition and old letters delight to hand them down. Let us see. There was my Lord Fairfax from Greenway Court, mounted on a splendid Arabian, followed by his faithful body-servant Scipio, a recluse whom they called the Cameron, but he was ever ready for the hunt. Then young Bird of Westover, owner of a celebrated plantation on the James, which the Marquis de Chastelot, on a visit in 1770, pronounced the most beautiful estate in Virginia. Bird was a zealous sportsman and had the finest hounds in the colony. We must not leave out, either, Major Bullet, who knew and was known by everybody, for a roaring blade was the Major, who loved the wine-cup, the chase, and the sound of the rattling dice. He was tall and slender, with soft brown eyes and a gentle voice, the mildest-mannered man that ever scuttled ship or cut a throat, so tis said. Not a desperate-looking fellow by any means, though the Major was in the colonial army, and was noted for cool bravery and determined nerve. He was nothing of a bully, not even quarrelsome, but his temper was rather quick and fiery, and a more devout believer in the code never lived. Indeed, he had the reputation of being the most famous duelist in Virginia. A crack shot, an accomplished swordsman, it made little difference to him on the field whether the saw-handle or the slender rapier was the weapon chosen. And there was Man Page, the richest man in the Old Dominion, with his plantation of eight thousand acres in Frederick County, called Pageland, ten thousand acres in Prince William, Page Wood, four thousand acres in Spotsylvania, Glen Page by name, and one thousand in King William, Pompadike, two thousand in Hanover, two thousand in James City, and a score of other farms of a thousand or so apiece, while his slaves were numbered by hundreds. Among the horsemen I see another character, and a most marked one of those times, one who gives us a blessing when we come into the world, and who throws the earth on us when we leave, who by a few words changes the whole tenor of our lives, and makes Van Winkles and Mr. Cottles of the wisest of us, who is loved by women and hated by men. I mean the parson, as he was commonly called at that time. The preacher was a jovial fellow in those days, not much given to praying, who kept up with the gentry in the maddest of their sports. If the truth were told, he preached on Sunday, rode on Monday, got drunk on Tuesday, and so on through the nursery song. Yes, we can imagine them all, men with historic names, which are as well known to us as household words handed down and worn by so many of our best and bravest. Selden, the handsomest man in the colony, McCarthy, fighting Randolph Carter, Washington, and hosts of others too numerous to mention. If the meat was striking, what must have been the glory of Chantilly in the Christmas time, when hosts of relations, friends, and even strangers gathered around the immense Yule log? Even around our campfires we had heard of old memories handed down from sires to sons, of those splendid entertainments. The table groaning under the weight of its feast, the rare old china, the massive family plate, the smoking haunch of venison, old Virginia cured hams, sweet as sugar, wild fowl from the Chesapeake, fish from Hog Island, rare old wines from famous cellars, and the silver punch-bowl filled with that most delicious of festive brews. We had heard, too, of those gay old balls where the proudest, the fairest, and best of the colonists met, where satin rustled, velvets trailed, and brocades swept over the polished floor, where jewels rich flashed in the soft becoming light of numberless wax candles, and the dress of the cavaliers, 
why the homeliest man would shine a thing of beauty in such array brought in big strong chests from across the sea velvet coats with gold buttons elaborately embroidered satin vests worked in delicate designs dainty ruffs of fine old lace shorts that reached to the knee and tied with a garter stockings of finest silk and long pointed shoes with jewelled buckles decked in these with an embossed belt hung over the right shoulder to which was attached a slender rapier in bright steel scabbard and a three-cornered cocked hat and you have the outfit complete in which shone the cavalier colonist in all his glory a decided contrast to the stiff ugly conventional black of our present day in which a man hardly can tell himself from his own waiter call to mind the stately gallantry the elegant courtesy that makes the very mention of their names and their sons names and their sons sons generations all passed away synonym of all that is refined and polished of all that is courteous and chivalrous to women and we once more people chantilly with the men who trod its now deserted boards and woke the slumbering echoes with dance and song and jest while i confess the theme has ever had strange fascination for me and many is the day reverie in which they have been as present in my mind in fancy as if i had seen them with my own eyes and before we leave the brave old chevaliers with names that shone some of them in revolutionary annals let us linger with them a moment at their banquets then relegate them to the shadows from which we brought them and peace be to their souls see the dining hall is all ablaze with waxen lights in silver candlesticks, the glare from the huge hickory logs, burning and snapping in the deep old fireplace, is touching and playing upon the burnished heavy plate. There are no ladies present. All the better, perhaps, if there had been, for these cocked-hat gentry imbibed like fish in those days, and got drunk on principle. Lucullus held as a maxim that women should be excluded from the feast and epicurus made it a practice to banish them because dinner was considered too serious a thing to be trifled with they both held that a man owed too sacred a duty to his digestion to risk it since life becomes a burden without its perfect condition the fullest enjoyment was not to be secured they said the heathens with women present a man could scarce hope to enjoy his wines his soup and his roast and at the same time play agreeable aux dames there was a time for everything and the time to eat was to attend to one's gastric juices in undisturbed repose. The courteous host is doing the honors with a graciousness his wife could scarcely rival. George Mason is in the crowd, the very prince of good fellows. Lord Fairfax, representing many miles of Virginia land, is here tonight, bending from his stern dignity and helping to swell the wassail. And by his side is his young friend, George Washington, trying to forget his dismissal by Mistress Carey, as he drains a bumper from the huge punch-bowl. But why attempt to name them all? Look how they rise and clink their glasses to that telling toast. How pleasantly it sounds, the roaring fire, the ringing of glasses, popping of corks, and the confused mingling of voices. You may be quite certain that the flowing bowl is circling round without stop or stay, and they are drinking without flinching to their host, each other, the chase, and their sweetheart's eyes not till the cloth is removed is the revelry fairly at its height with no fears of waiting wives or stern old governors the men and youths are drinking deeply faces are already flushing to a deeper hue and voices are raised in tone steady old goers are speaking of dashing runs and desperate exploits of the chase the statesman is forgetting his caution and revealing the secrets of his heart 
The planter is discussing his crops. The parson, with rubicon nose all aflame, is arguing in thick tones the relative styles of beauty with that rake, Major Bullet, and— But my dream is ended. The conjured picture vanishes into thin air as did my reverie, of which this is but a shadow, when the sergeant's lips, which had been in solemn communing hitherto with his pipe, gathered voice to say, Here we are. I started, collected my wandering senses, and looked up. Before me was Chantilly, a stately old place, with spacious porch and a passage running from end to end, so broad that a four-horse wagon might have driven through it. A wide stairway led to the apartments above. The house was built of brick brought over from England, but the various wings, added at intervals, were of solid oak. Around the house was a splendid park of full-grown chestnut trees that shadowed and adorned the fine old mansion. No one inhabited the house when the enemy made the first advance to Bull Run, its owner having collected previously all his negroes, lairs and penance, and started for Richmond. The said enemy had carried off all that was portable, but had had no time to gut and sack the house. To protect it from further plunder by our own soldiers, a guard was placed over it, with orders to allow no one to trespass upon the premises, and so it fell out that instead of tripping the light fantastic toe, I was doomed to guard old Chantilly that night. It was a beautiful, soft, balmy Indian summer night, and both grounds and mansion looked lovely. After sauntering some time along the porch I entered, and commenced a tour of inspection. On the right a door opened into the parlor, a long, handsome apartment extending the whole length of the house. There was no furniture left except an ancient spindle-legged piano of German make, whose keys were yellow with age. I struck a few chords. It gave out a jingling sound, but appeared to be in passable tune. The instrument was at the front end of the parlor, between the door and the long window that opened into the porch. I am particular in describing its position. Across the room, and directly opposite the piano, there hung two portraits, the one of a woman, but so blurred with age as to be nearly indistinguishable. The other a man's, judging by his attire. The features had faded with time, all except the eyes, which shone out with startling distinctness from the shadowy face, with an expression of intense surprise, as if questioning my presence there. Leaving this room I went up the broad, handsome stairway leading into a long gallery, from which a suite of rooms opened, looking to the front of the building. In nearly all of these apartments there was furniture, rather cracked and antique specimens, which no one but a curiosity-seeker would care for. Evidently all articles of value had been removed, and only these few old relics of a century past left as lone sentries at their post. Oh, sad! This dismantled home, with its rich association of years, endeared to its owners by all the refinements of cultured life, left to a ruthless and reckless soldiery. The old King Lear of a house turned adrift in its old age to bear the raging tempest. Nothing but the body of the old house left, the soul, the life, all gone. I explored the building all over, its every nook and corner, its lofty rooms. It seemed as if a whole regiment might have found shelter within its spaciousness. Descending, I went out upon the porch, paced up and down, and watched the campfires breaking out one by one, like sentinel stars in the sky. Through the branches of the grove, the night wind murmured a gentle plaint. It was dusk, and, darker and darker, the black shadows fall, 
the neighboring forest became one with the night and the house was indistinguishable in the gloom the reveille from camp had sounded eight o'clock it was time the relief was coming i went on at six and had been two hours at my post four hours off for me and then i was to go on again at midnight eight o'clock and dark as pitch i was getting nervous i could swear that i heard a door slam but thank heaven there came the sound of the advancing relief their steady footfalls the clink of their accoutrements was sweetest music to my longing ears they advanced up the gravelled walk halt grand relief friends with the countersign advance one with the countersign the guard came up to the porch and gave the password potomac i yielded him my place and repeated instructions which were to let no one enter the house and should it be attempted to halt three times and then if necessary fire i joined the relief marched back to camp and turning in the guard tent was asleep in a moment the quick stern cry of guards turn out brought us to our feet at once sergeants and men were talking in an excited tone and for a few moments no one could tell what was the matter but the officer of the day came and in the silence that then fell the cause was soon understood one of the relief was brought in the tent by two guards and if ever there was a man literally frightened out of his senses that man was before us then his hat was gone his hair hanging over his face half hiding his wide protruding eyes his features were deadly pale huge beads of perspiration were dripping down upon his jacket and he trembled like an aspen leaf but he could answer no questions and only begged that we would spare him the details of that which he had seen even after we had given him a heavy drink and his pulse had assumed its wonted beat and the color had returned slowly to his face even then he said he could not put in words the terror of the past two hours he had been detailed to guard chantilly and it was there at his post that he had heard and seen what he would never forget and this was all we could learn or ever learned again the trembling seized his limbs again we noticed the deadly paleness of his face when even the officer was moved to pity and instead of having him handcuffed and tried in the near future for one of the most serious infractions of military law a soldier can commit that of leaving an outpost without permission was so much struck with the man's abject condition that he only ordered him back to his post but with this command the soldier positively refused to comply he said without equivocation he would be shot first and that nothing earthly could induce him to go into that house again or even near it after dark he said too he knew it was now his business to try and put some people out of the world but once out he considered he had no further use of any of them and that he was willing to stand a court-martial any day but that he was not willing to stand up against ghosts ghosts said the officer contemptuously ghosts why are you a baby some old woman's tales have been frightening you maybe they have and maybe they haven't but i am not going into that house again you know yourself lieutenant i don't sing second to any soldier on the battlefield yes that is so cordially assented the officer and that is why i have thought better things of you but go in the guard tent and consider yourself under arrest then turning to me he continued hunter get your musket and take his post and sergeant go and place this man on duty i stood speechless and almost petrified what when a full-grown man and one of the most daring soldiers in the regiment had been scared almost to death at chantilly that i a mere boy should be sent into that ghost-haunted place me ordered to go me i could not believe 
anything so cruel, and I found words to protest. Lieutenant, for God's sake, don't send me to Chantilly. That's your post, sir. Go and take it. But, Lieutenant, let some soldier go with me. No, sir. Here you came to me this morning to be let off that you might attend a ball at the courthouse, and now because this man has listened to some old grandmother's yarn, and frightened himself half to death, raised himself a shadow to run from, you must needs follow his example. Don't be a coward. That word stung me and settled the matter so far as I was concerned. I would have gone inside a tomb and lain down, as Romeo says, amid dead men's bones, reeky shanks and yellow chapless skulls, in a charnel house, much less Chantilly. So I made but one request, to be allowed to take a light with me, which was granted, and then with my long tallow dip in hand, amid the goodbyes of my comrades and their parting salutations and advice, I started with the sergeant for Chantilly. It was a moonless night, though the sky was brilliant with stars as we entered the dense grove. Passing through the gloom, strange figures seemed to glide in and out among the tree trunks. Spectral arms reached out toward us. The breeze, which had sprung up since nightfall, sounded like boding voices from the grave. I began to quiver with long, low, creeping shivers that curdled the blood like a congestive chill. I thought of shapes that walk at dead of night and clank their chains and wave the torch of hell around the murderer's bed. I clung close to the sergeant, who was under the influence too and was leaning over toward me, and in such affectionate manner we passed from under the trees and went stoutly up the walk to the house standing dark and grim in the background. I lit my candle, and unscrewing the bayonet from the gun, made use of it for a candlestick, and stuck it in the open piano. Ugh! How chilly the cold air felt inside the room, and how the old villain's eye glared from the portrait to see me there again. I glared back, while the dip flared ominously, as if it meant to leave me in utter darkness. Don't leave me, sergeant, I pleaded huskily. Stay with me. I swear I would rather go into heavy battle than stay here for ten minutes by myself. I would do so, old fellow, but I have all the guard mounts to attend to. Keep a stiff upper lip. Two hours will soon pass by, and if I possibly can, I will be here before that time. Besides, you won't be in the dark, he added as he turned to go. Do you think that candle will last two hours? I inquired anxiously. Oh, yes. Good-bye, and don't allow your imagination to run away with you. And so saying, the sergeant struck a match, lighted his pipe, and left me. I looked at my borrowed watch. It was just twelve, the mystic hour when spirits most do walk abroad, and here behold me in the old haunted house alone. Alone, it meant more than at first appeared, when even the company of a dog would have been invaluable. I tried walking on the porch, but I had an insane desire to go inside, so stepping across the sill I entered the parlor. The candle was flaring and wasting away in the draught. The old cavalier never ceased to look at me with those fierce questioning eyes, as if bent on draining every secret of my soul. I struck some chords on the piano, and the reverberations came back, it seemed, from every chamber in the house. I began to feel uncomfortable. The candle did not fully light the great room with the little ghostly glare it shed, and in the distant corners, lying in shadow, mystical spirits seemed to congregate pointing and gibbering at me, black spirits and white, blue spirits and gray. I grew so fancifully nervous that I went out in the open porch once more, and there I heard singular muffled voices upstairs, voices as of women talking, it seemed to me. I turned cold, 
and back into the house I wandered in my restlessness, only to feel an added thrill as the eyes gleamed threateningly at me from the canvas. Again those sounds from the upper rooms, screams of laughter, and I could stand it no longer. Forming a desperate resolution, I grasped the candle in one hand, the musket in the other, and marched up the stairs. Each step woke a separate echo, and it seemed as if feet long since moldering in the grave were walking along the floors and ascending the back stairway, and all the stairways at once, up into the gallery, while the high old clock stood like a spectre on the landing. I could swear that it was ticking. Nothing there. Through the front rooms, farther up, and I was appalled by a furious noise somewhere. I started to run, but knowing if I once took to flight I would never stop this side of camp, I retreated slowly. I saw nothing, not even a shadow. I turned to descend, and as I did so I became conscious that something was following me. I could not hear it, nor could I feel it or touch it, but my sixth sense told me the shape was there, dogging me close behind. For the life of me I could not look around, so I kept on increasing my speed until I burst into the parlor with a rush, and then I turned and stood at bay. Nothing was there. Absolutely nothing. And though I felt sick I tried to laugh it off but could not. Once more placing the bayonet candlestick in the piano top, I sought the open air of the porch and then lighted my pipe. O oh, sweet and noble comforter, what a friend thou art in need! For as the smoke curled up from my lips it left in its wake sweetest and purest comfort. The bounding heartbeat became quiet and shaken nerves firmer, and I began to smile at the vivid imagination which made my ear take note of sounds that never smote the air. So I seated myself on the steps and watched the campfires which were fast smoldering out, leaving only one here and there to tell where a great army lay, and then I commenced to sing in a low voice our favorite air. All quiet along the Potomac tonight, where the soldiers lie peacefully dreaming. Hark! What sound was that? The piano, yes, the piano, as I live. There goes a running scale, and now a full crash. I could scarcely get my breath, and my heart thumped like a trip-hammer. I rose to my feet and stood like one turned to stone, and then by a strong effort of will I went across to the window and looked in. Everything was just as I had left it. Only the candle was nearly burned up, and there remained but a death-wick hanging down to chronicle departed time. The old fellow on the wall was scowling menacingly, and thrilled me with horror. I went back to my place again on the steps, again relit my pipe, and sought to restore my shattered equilibrium. But my thoughts were far beyond my control and refused to be soothed by tobacco. They dwelt defiantly on every ghost story I had ever heard. Banquo shook his gory locks at me with eyes that had no speculation in them, and I remember how Macbeth said, it was a bold man that dare look on that which might appall the devil. Old Mr. Hamlet, Sr., walked abroad with his slugged-up ear, rattling his canonized bones, hearsed in death. Clarence sat heavy on my soul, and all his fellow shadows struck as much terror to my heart as ever they did to Richard's. I hardly know whose ghost the witch of Endor brought up, or whether somebody brought up hers, but I am pretty certain that she was at her worst and favored me with her company. I recall lines that I was not conscious had ever lingered in my mind, nor do I remember now where I have ever met with them. We have no title deeds to house or lands, owners and occupants of earlier dates, from graves forgotten stretch their dusty hands, and hold in mortmain still their old estates. Shades of Erebus! How many of those hapless landlords of Chantilly, 
might take it into their heads to stalk abroad to-night. Here I was brought to my feet more quickly than if a whole salvo of artillery had been fired in the yard, for the crashing tones of the piano came again startlingly clear to my ear. There was no ground for a mistake now. I felt as if an icy hand encircled my heart, my head spun so I could not see. My brain teemed with horrid, hideous images, and skeleton hands seemed to grasp my throat. Rising to my feet with a spasmodic step like a sleepwalker, I turned toward the point from whence the sound proceeded. Yes, yes, clear and loud the piano keys were being touched by ghostly fingers. My eyes seemed to fill with blood, and then like a felon walking from the cell door to the steps of the gallows, I moved to the window and looked in. I saw, or fancied I saw, a brilliant company in gorgeous array. But, oh horrors! Instead of smiling, beautiful faces, there grinned each skull with awful cavities where eyes and nose should have been, and every toothless mouth was gapping wide. A dozen skeleton fingers suddenly pointed to me, and a burst of hideous laughter followed. By the expiring flicker of the candlewick it looked to me like a scene from the inferno. Unless I could break the spell I felt I should go mad, so with a last convulsive movement I raised my gun, leveled it, and pulled the trigger. A burst of light, a stunning report, and darkness. A shriek, a long, loud shriek. I turned and fled. How I reached camp I never knew. I suppose I ran myself clear out of breath. I reached camp without hat, gun, or cartridge box, and speechless. I told my tale by degrees to a believing audience. None doubted me. That night the lieutenant went with a guard and examined the premises. In the garret they found half a dozen swallows that had just tumbled down the chimney, and so those mysterious noises that had frightened my brave predecessor and myself were explained. So far so good. And now must I spoil my ghost story. They generally all end as did mine, so I had better add a few words more before we turn in for the night. In the parlor were found the remains of the candle, and on the keys lay a huge rat which my bullet had struck before it had embedded itself in the solid wood. The explanation now is easy. Frightened when I started, I became wrought up to such a state of nervous excitement by the noises upstairs and my own vivid imagination that when the old rat sounded the keys of the piano by jumping on them, I believed that beings of another world were present in bodily shape. Nay, I actually saw them, for superstitious terror had made me as mad as any patient in Bedlam, and with my own voice ringing in my ears I broke away from the scene. You will say it was because I was a mere boy, but that had nothing to do with it. A boy can be as brave as a man, and every man is a coward in the dark. Sergeant, said the colonel next day, did you give a canteen of whiskey to Private Hunter yesterday? No, sir, the canteen was only half full, and he was so scared. Thereafter the doughtiest warrior would not stand guard at Chantilly, and it was left to be pillaged. The bad name it received remained with it. In 1862, just after the Second Battle of Manassas, the fine old house was burned to the ground, and in a short while the forest was laid low by soldiers, and so faded from earth even the slightest trace of its sight. The place that knew it knows it no more. How curious are the tricks of fate! There was one man of high rank in the Union Army, who in the days of Homer would have been the very incarnation of war. He was the Ajax of his legions, and led them in battle always where the harvest of death was thickest. Knightly as Bayard himself, and as brave as Ney, he was the ideal American soldier of the nineteenth century. Reared and educated in America, 
after leaving his good right arm at Chapultepec, in the faraway mountains of Mexico, he spent years in Europe, where he was the pride and delight of the salon and the ornament of the courts of royalty. Coming back to his native land at the commencement of the Civil War, he at once assumed high command, and on the evening of September 1, 1862, General Phil Kearney, charging through the oaks of old Chantilly, far in advance of his line of battle, with sword in hand and his bridle in his teeth, fell headlong, with a bullet through his heart, but a few steps from the historic mansion. I gazed long that gloomy evening upon his dead face, and wondered at that strange destiny that had brought him to die at the home of the Stuarts. End of Part 1, Chapter 10